So hear the word of the Lord from John 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you, take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. How are we doing, church? Well, hey, my name is Scott, and I am the director of operations here at Sacred City. And uh, as Justin, our lead pastor, got to bask in the great sunlight in Arizona, uh, I've gotten to be just saturated in John's gospel for a couple weeks in a row. So I don't know about you, but I might, I might pick the second uh, rather than the first. Uh, it has been so good for me to sit in this, uh, in, in God's word. And even this week, I feel like I had a little bit of a cheat code because maybe y'all, some of y'all don't know this, uh, but others on the staff are like deeply invested in the study of God's word. Uh, and so this week, I feel like I got to write my sermon in community as Joel was giving me some sermon and Kevin was giving me some sermon. And I just get to put together what we're hearing from God uh, in order to be able to bring it to bear on our lives. Well, the other place that I'm in John's gospel right now is with the interns, right? Like I told you earlier at the beginning of this year, we brought on four interns uh, that have been a huge gift to our church. One of the ways uh, that we're trying to equip and train those interns is once a month we're doing this biblical foundation uh, track where we're building into them and hopefully teaching them uh, overviews of 12 different books of the Bible, one a month, okay? So we started with the easy one, the low-hanging fruit, right? The gospel of John, uh, because that's where we're sitting for most of this year. And I was reminded uh, as I was training and equipping these interns how clear John is about the main point of his gospel. Right? We were talking about the melodic line, uh, as theologians call it, of John's gospel. Just like uh, your favorite songs, right? I don't know what that is for you, but just like your favorite song, there's usually a good beat that's hitting, a rhythm that's rocking throughout the whole of that song that kind of connects all of it to one main point. Well, the beat running through John's gospel is John chapter 20, verse 31, that you're going to hear ripped in today's text is this. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
I think it's good for us that no matter what text we're stepping into in John's gospel, that we remember the author John's evangelistic purpose to tell us, hey, I picked out these specific stories. I selected this from my firsthand eyewitness account of Jesus' life. I I selected this part to write down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you might find life in his name. And this text is no different. This morning, we find ourselves again in the upper room discourse. Uh, We've been talking about this for a while, but Jesus and his disciples gathered in an upper room to take the Passover together. It was Jesus' last Passover here on earth with his disciples. And it was in that room that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It was in that room that the betrayer was identified and sent out from among them. It was there in that room that Jesus will share with his closest disciples some profound truths to prepare them for his impending death and resurrection. And one of the truths that comes out in today's passage is one of the seven I am statements that Jesus chose to declare to his people that Jesus is God. Well, I remember it quite vividly, all right? Uh, it was my first job working in a church. I, I was hired at Parkview Church to be a part of the staff for 24-7 college ministry, and uh, uh, our offices, it was more like a stable, okay? Everybody else had offices. The college ministry just grouped together in one giant room, right? Uh, but our, our stable was right next to the nursery and the uh, nursing mom's room at the church, So if you were there on a Sunday morning, my office or the stable was not the place that you would go for a moment of silence and preparation on a Sunday morning, right? You see, uh, it was never quiet in the college offices at Parkview Church because there were always crying children nearby. Well, I knew that noise of the crying babies, but I didn't understand the ferocity, okay, that these babies were crying with until later that year when our college ministry was asked to cover for the marriage conference, right? Like, uh, so we, as college students and the college staff, we ended up taking care of childcare for the entire conference, and uh, I served in the nursery, Well, it was my first time in there, all right? Uh, We didn't have kids yet of our own. And uh, so I was watching as this happens, right? And and you've got these moms coming in with their really small children. And the pro-moms... They knew what they were doing. They would bring their small child into the room and they would get their child set up playing with something. They would wait until that moment that their kid was distracted and then boom, they are out of that room, right? They knew what was going on. But here's the deal. No matter how well that kid was distracted, at some point, the majority of those children would look up, open their eyes, see me, and recognize I was definitely not their mom. And in that moment, not only did they discern that I wasn't their mom, they looked around, they figured out that their mom was not in the room, and they decided, I have been abandoned. And they would scream out with all the ferocity that they had because they thought that that noise was the only way to get their mom to come back down that hallway and to be back with them again, right? You see, what we call that, y'all, is separation anxiety. That was what I was experiencing that day in the nursery, You see, church, this separation anxiety, it doesn't slow down to wisely consider what their mom was doing, right? 
The, this separation anxiety doesn't uh, take the time to realize that their mom has left them with upstanding college students that could really take care of them that night. But definitely, uh, this separation anxiety doesn't slow down to recognize the truth. We were right there up in God's house. They had nothing to be, well, maybe they did. Their mom wasn't there, right? But it does not actually wisely think through these situations. Separation anxiety hastily assumes that my mom has abandoned me. This separation anxiety quickly concludes that my mom is not coming back for me. And this separation anxiety believes that making a fuss loud enough for her to hear me before she gets too far down that hallway is the only way to keep these things from happening. If you remember, we talked about this a bit last week, uh, The disciples are in full-on separation anxiety. They can see the writing on the wall, y'all. They had heard Jesus say, John chapter 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then they watched as Jesus dipped his bread, and he handed it to the betrayer. Then they heard Jesus say, what you're going to do, do it quickly, And they saw the betrayer walk out. And as soon as he was out, they heard Jesus change his tune and say, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Y'all, the disciples understood what this meant. They knew that Jesus was talking about going to die. They knew that he was going to a place that they weren't going to get to come yet. And they start to slip into this separation anxiety before he even leaves the room, which is why I think he chose to address it in our text this morning the way that he does. So before we get even started this morning, I want us to see just how common this is in our everyday lives, okay? Think about this with me. Uh, Y'all ever been a new Christian or met a new Christian, right? Uh, Man, it's a good season, right? To be on fire for Jesus. You feel completely untouchable in your walk with the Lord. You're like, man, my mantra is the joy of the Lord is my strength and nothing is going to stop me. You live each day in the tangible presence and power of Jesus because in these seasons, God allows us to sense and to be aware of this real Uh, of them, of these things in a real tangible way during this season. But I wonder, maybe you've been a new Christian uh, or maybe you've watched as this happened in a new Christian's life. I wonder, how do you react when that tangible sense of his presence and power seems to wear off? Right? God didn't cease to be powerful or present in your life but you didn't feel it and you weren't aware of it in the same way as you were before. I wonder, how did you react when you experienced what John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul or what I used to call in college ministry the spiritual sophomore slump? Well, the majority of us respond in separation anxiety. Instead of believing the truth about Jesus' power and presence, we hastily assume that the difference in my feelings and my experience of God meant that God must have abandoned me. Until you realized he didn't because some wise person came along and reminded you he is still present and powerful. Or think about this. 
A lot of times uh, we, we feel called by God, right? Uh, you maybe asked your MC, you got godly counsel, you counted the cost, and you are sure that God has called you to a great task. And he probably has. Because scripture says that he's prepared good works in advance for us to do. And it's time for you to start walking in it. Amen? So you're cruising along. You're using your gifts. You're experiencing God's blessing in your life. And all of a sudden, something gets dropped in your path that seems like it's going to keep you from carrying out that calling. Well, what do you do? Well, most of us, in essence, start ferociously crying like a baby that's been dropped off in the nursery instead of realizing that God has not abandoned you. He is the author of all the parts of your story, and your story is going to be better if he sows in some difficult moments in your story to prepare you for the chapter and to be the person who could actually accomplish the calling that he's called you to. It's not by accident that those things get dropped in our story, but when they do, oftentimes we suffer with this separation anxiety. Sacred City Church, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has not abandoned us. In our our text this morning, he even shows us what to do when that separation anxiety creeps in. You see, if we trust who Jesus is and what he has done, we need not ever feel abandoned by Jesus Christ. My sermon title this morning is, Let Not Your Hearts Be Flooded with Separation Anxiety. We're going to briefly walk through this text, and then we're going to see what do we do when we feel this separation anxiety, why don't we do those things, and we're going to see how Jesus has graciously made a way forward for us. Will you all pray with me? God, we are desperately in need of your presence and power this morning. We know that you have been with us and you will continue to be with us. But as we gather corporately this morning, we long to hear from you. We want to be sheep that know your voice. And so, God, I ask that you would uh, work in and through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would open each one of us, our ears and our eyes and our hearts, to see you, to hear from you, and to put your word into practice in our lives. It's in your name that we trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Well... As we wade into this text, let's look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right at the beginning, if if you're familiar with John chapter 14, you're realizing uh, this is one of those nice moments when the author has kind of bookended something for you to make it really easy for us to understand. He starts with this phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. If you were to jump down to verse 27, I'll try not to steal from Justin's text too much next week, okay? But he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. You see, Jesus here in the upper room, uh, as the disciples are realizing that he's going to prepare a place for them, and he's going to a place that they can't come yet, is saying, hey, my heart was just troubled in in chapter 13, but I don't want your hearts to be troubled. And in the middle of that, in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. You see, in the midst of their separation anxiety that's flooding their hearts, 
Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, but the disciples seem to have some questions. Look at uh, verse 2. In my father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Y'all, this is like uh, your mom making the bed and cleaning the guest room before someone comes over, except Jesus is preparing a place in his father's house for uh, his followers to stay forever. And Jesus says with a matter-of-fact tone right here, you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus is asserting that his disciples know how to follow him. He has been showing them the way. And if they follow that way, they will come to where he is. And then it's followed up with Thomas's question. Look at verse 5. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? You remember what Jesus just said with a lot of confidence? You know the way. And Thomas is like, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? We're going to get into this, uh, the significance of who is asking that question a little bit later. But for now, I want us to see that Jesus doesn't even really respond to that. He just continues on and gives a big, fat truth about who he is. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus responds to Thomas's question, telling him who he is. He says, I am the way. Jesus not only shows us the way, but he is the way. Jesus came to show us our sin and need for the gospel, but he is also the way, the only way. And he follows up this statement by saying there's no other way to get to the Father. Jesus is not only a way, Jesus is the way, church. This flies directly in the face of all these pluralistic lies that our culture wants to tell us. They want to paint some picture that there's a mountain and there's a lot of ways to get up that mountain to be with God the Father. But Jesus says, no, I am the way, the only way to the Father. This is an exclusive claim and Jesus meant for it to sound that way. But he doesn't just say, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. Jesus is this dependable, trustworthy guide that his disciples can follow. But he's also the gospel truth that we must believe on so that we who were once blind might find sight. Jesus is the truth that will set us free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and he says he is the life. Just like we've been talking about uh, since this summer, right? In John 20, 31, you already heard it this morning. John wrote this gospel so that we might believe and find life in Jesus' name. Heaven's not some personal paradise that looks different for each one of us. Heaven is eternal life in the presence of the triune God. Jesus is our destination. Jesus is life. Remember that Jesus is talking to men who have left their homes and their families to follow him, and he says they do not really know him. Of course, they know him in a relational sense, but in this moment, they're still unwrapping the full significance of Jesus' identity. 
Church, are we humble, humble enough people to recognize that if they rocked it with him for three days, walking with him and kicking it with him, that each one of us still needs to dig in and realize more fully just who Jesus is and the significance of his identity? And so it goes on in verse eight, Philip's got another question. These guys are just not picking up what Jesus is putting down. And so Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. Clearly, Philip does not know Jesus in this moment or that would have been enough for him, but he's living in blindness and unbelief. And so we continue on and Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe, Philip? Philip's like, it'd be enough, Jesus, if you just showed me the Father. Well, Jesus is like, if the disciples believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, man, that would be more than they could even imagine, wouldn't it be? The disciples are feeling like they're going to be left as orphans, left to battle their way through this world alone, but Jesus has news for them that is more than enough. He says, if you believe in me, look at verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Think about this. Jesus rallied a small group of followers in his ministry on earth, but after he conquered death, sin, and Satan on the cross, 3,000 people, y'all, put their faith in Jesus the first time Peter preaches a sermon. We get to be a part of what he's doing. We get to be, do even greater things than Jesus has done in him. Not only that, it also opens his door to pray in his name. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Church, I want you to think for a moment of a time when you started believing the lies that God was absent. A moment that was so rough and so troubling in your days that you started to live in or slip into this separation anxiety that Jesus' disciples find themselves in this morning. Maybe it was after a breakup. Maybe it was a, a job loss. Maybe it was a financial crisis or a death in the family. Or maybe all those things seem to happen at once in your life. You wondered where God went and if he even cared. Maybe this is exactly where you've been feeling this week. If that's the case, God has you right where he wants you this morning. So let's answer this question. What are we to do when we feel this kind of separation anxiety, when we feel like God is absent or he has abandoned us? Well, this is going to feel pretty simple, but we've got to start with the simple before we move forward. In verse 1, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus' simple message for his disciples and each one of us by extension as they're considering what life would be like without him physically walking along and their band of brothers kicking it with them. 
It's not for them to go find a new workout regimen to deal with the extra stress that's going to be on their shoulders, although that might help. It's not to find a new hobby to take their mind off of this hardship that's coming in their life or anything like that. Instead, Jesus gets right to the point and tells them, and by extension, each one of us, think about this, that we don't have a doing problem. We have a believing problem. He reminds them what my friend Jeff tells us often in MC, that we are not human doings, we are human beings. Sacred City, I'm going to put it to you straight. When you feel or don't feel the tangible presence of God, when your mind is filled with doubt, when you're just wondering if God cares, when we're ferociously crying out like a newborn dropped off in a nursery in the midst of our separation anxiety, our problem is primarily not a doing problem. It's a believing problem. And we see that in the text. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. And we jump down and his response to Philip is the same. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And he says it again, believe in me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, at least just believe on account of the works that I'm doing. Haven't I done enough miracles for you to believe who I am? You see, when we find ourselves feeling like this, we've got to press into the unbelief with the, uh, with the truth of who God is, what he's done, and who we are as a result of the good news of the gospel. But since we're here, there's something else I don't want us to miss. John 14, 1 not only tells us to believe, it tells us the arena of our battle for belief. It's not merely in our minds, but it's in our hearts. Did you see that? I want to make sure we understand this because this is something I didn't get growing up, okay? I grew up, and until I was 19 years old, when somebody said something about believing in Jesus, I thought they were talking about a cognitive ascent in my mind to believe that this man was a historical person, that he died on a Roman cross, and that he rose from the grave three days later, and that I just needed to ascend to that logically or rationally somehow in my mind that that happened. Here's the deal, church. When the New Testament speaks of belief, it's much more than this. There's this premarital counseling uh, material that my wife and I use with new couples, and it says it like this. It says the word belief in our culture, it has this very mental, cognitive, rational aspect to it. But when the Bible speaks of belief, it's talking about something much more. It's talking about worship. A believer, according to the Bible's point of view, is a person who worships God, who loves God, who treasures God, who desires to obey and please God above all else. A believer is someone who sees God not just as a part of her life, but as the central defining reality of life. This is what Jesus is calling us to in the midst of our separation anxiety, to see him as the central defining reality of life. You see, Jesus knew that his disciples would endure hardship and suffering, but he also knew the best way to do that was to worship him through the suffering, all the while standing in the truth of who he is and trusting in what he has done for us. Sacred City, to any of you who find yourself in the midst of trying question, or circumstances or who are questioning the presence and the power of God, I call you believe in Jesus. Worship him and him alone. Build your life on his promises. 
And because every last one of us struggles with unbelief, this sermon's gonna cover more than just one verse this morning, all right? So the second question I wanna address is why do we seem to keep struggling with this separation anxiety, believing that God has abandoned us in the midst of hard circumstances? Well, I don't know about y'all, but I love learning from other people's mistakes. You know what I mean? This morning, we have an opportunity like that. Uh, the one example of this in my life is uh, back in the day, uh, our family used to live on Andrea Court in Iowa City, and we had this uh, house where we, we used to host a lot of things, living on mission, and so it was either a Memorial Day or a Labor Day weekend. I don't remember which one it was. We had a ton of people up in our house, okay? 50 people, lots of kids running around everywhere, and some of our best friends are over. Well, uh, their youngest son... God help him in this moment, right? Uh, he's playing out back with our kids and he's really excited about something and he wants to come into the house in order to tell mom and dad about it. And so I see him, I'm literally front row seat at our dining room table watching our back deck and I see this kid run up the back stairs, full on sprint up the stairs, across the deck and wham, his face hits the glass sliding door. <laughs> I mean, he crushed that sliding door so hard that he had a bloody nose to boot. I mean, just ran right on into it like it was open. Man, that, that's a good opportunity to learn from, right? Like, don't run into sliding glass doors. You'd think that I would have learned this, right? Well, lately, uh, y'all heard this. I already have told the whole church, right? Our family uh, made the decision to buy a puppy for Christmas. And so uh, one of our puppy's favorite pastimes uh, in our house, one of the way that we let him out to go to the bathroom is to go out through our Four Seasons room, which has a sliding glass door. And at the beginning, he just did not get it, right? <laughs> Murray just comes running in after going to the bathroom, thinking that he did something right, like a good boy, right? And boom, his face just hits that glass sliding door. Well, you know, like, you know, so I've not only seen my friend's kid do this, but I've seen our puppy do it a couple of times. But I tell you what, in the midst of the, the fog of having a new puppy that's not sleeping all that great and is wearing me out, one morning with no audience, praise the Lord, I'm walking Murray in from going to the bathroom and just boom, face on the glass, Right? I tell you what, I love learning from the mistakes of others. It's a lot easier on my nose and my face than having to go through it myself. And it makes me realize uh, that, hey, we've got an opportunity to do that here. So let's learn from the unbelief of these two disciples about our separation anxiety because I think we're a lot like them. Start with verse two, okay? Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And again, he says with super, super confident, and you know the way to where I am going. Y'all, Jesus says, you know the way where I am going. And the next thing out of this brother's mouth is, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I tell you what, this should be a little bit of a wake-up call for some of us. We each believe things that are directly contrary to what God says in his word. And because of that, I think we're about to smash our faces into the glass-like sliding door of life. We should take a step back when we're saying things like Thomas here that are directly contrary to what Jesus has said, right? But let's take this one step further. 
I want you to notice what my friend, my friend Kevin helped me to see this week. The disciple that contradicted Jesus like this, his name's Thomas. Y'all know what Thomas's nickname is? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas is called that because later in John's gospel, he's like the only one not in the room when the resurrected Jesus shows up. You know what doubting, doubting Thomas says in verse 25 of chapter 20? The other disciples are like, hey, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas says to them, well, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. Sounds a lot like what he just said. Jesus says this, and he's like, uh, no. You see, Thomas thought what he needed was eye faith. But because Jesus is gracious and merciful, he gave Thomas what he truly needed. If we followed along in the text in verse 26, eight days later, his disciples are inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came right up on in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, all right, Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas finally gets it. He says, my Lord and my God. It's his triumphant message or moment in John's gospel. But then Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Y'all, some of us, I think, like doubting Thomas, struggle with separation anxiety because we are so focused on what we can see and feel that we forget what is true. We get so laser focused on the swirling storm of circumstance around us, the hardship that we're going through, this thing that's been dropped in our path that is seemingly keeping us from obeying the calling of God, and we can only see that. And we forget the truth of who God is. We think we need eye faith when what God's calling us to is a true heart level faith in Jesus Christ. Belief in Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life regardless of what we see in front of us or how we feel in the moment. You see, it's not enough for us to trust Jesus when we see it or when we tangibly feel his presence and power. God is calling us to believe that Jesus is the light of the world even in the darkest of circumstances because it's true and because it's best for our hearts. Amen? But like me needing a second example of my puppy Murray running into that sliding glass door, I think each of us needs yet another example to learn from. So let's look at what Philip does. Philip says to Jesus, look at verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. <laughs> Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Church, some of us, like Thomas, struggle with separation anxiety because of what we see, what's right there in front of us. But others of us who get caught up in separation anxiety, we're more like Philip. We freak out and we act like God's abandoned us simply because we forget who God is and what he's done. Amen? Do you hear the way that Jesus is talking to Philip? Jesus is like, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? How can you say, show us the Father, Philip? 
Do you not believe, Philip? I think Jesus is a little bit astounded by Philip's unbelief here. Those of us who have been around since this summer know how many times in John's gospel Jesus has said to his disciples, I and the Father are one. Right? Philip's probably heard Jesus say this over and over again. But he still asks, can you just show us the Father? That'll be enough for me. He thinks that's going to be the cure to his problem of unbelief. Church, many of us struggle with separation anxiety in our relationship with God simply because we are broken people who live in a broken world. We are sick, and part of the disease of sin is unbelief. And this battle to believe the good news of the gospel, to stand in the truth of who God is and what he has done and who we are as a result of that is a battle that we are going to be fighting right up until the moment Jesus comes back. And I believe this is why Jesus, right here in the upper room, in one of his final conversations with his disciples before his death and resurrection, took the time to remind his disciples who he is and tell them the way forward. Y'all, this week uh, with the interns, we're not in the Gospel of John anymore. We flipped the page uh, and we're working on uh, gospel fluency. That's what we're uh, doing a training on uh, for a while here. And one of the things that we got to do is take a few topics, things that people are struggling with. Maybe they're having a financial problem or maybe they're struggling with sexual purity. And we got to take that topic and what the person would say to you. Say an MC, you know, somebody's confessing, hey, like my car died and I really need a new car. And we played around with it together as interns and, and myself, and we said, okay, what really is the problem going on here? And, and we talked about how it's necessary for us to ask questions to understand what's under that problem so that we can help people around us in our MC understand that they have a belief in the gospel problem. Usually we need to believe in the gospel and have that problem solved before we ever get our car problem solved. You with me? We need to know who Jesus is, what he has done, and who we are as a result before we skip to the last part of the program, which is what do I now do in the midst of this situation I find myself in? You see, instead of believing that Jesus is absent or impotent in our minds in the midst of our separation anxiety, we've got to look to his word to remind us of who he is. And isn't that just what Jesus does here? In the midst of this text, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let's hit on it one more time. Jesus says, I am the way. I think this is Jesus' way of reminding us, Sacred City, that we are not Mandalorians. There's no, this is the way I have spoken with Jesus here. He says, not this is the way. He says, I am the way. Jesus doesn't give us a code of conduct that we have to live by. He is a person to believe in. Jesus doesn't give us a shiny Beskar mask to hide behind like the Mandalorian. No, Jesus gives us himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who knit us together in our mother's womb, who knows the number of hairs on our heads, who knows everything that we have and have not done, and he still loves us so much that he gave his life to pay the punishment for our sin. You see, Jesus not only shows us the way, I think Thomas really just wanted a map. You know, he's like, hey, he's like, I don't know the way. We don't know the way, Jesus. Can you just give us a map? No. He gives him himself. And more specifically, 
Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. Nobody can get to the Father who is in heaven apart from me. Y'all, there are not many paths up the mountain of eternal life like our pluralistic culture would want us to think. There is one way to experiencing eternity in the presence of the holy God of the Bible, and it's through Jesus. Think about it like this. In order to be in the presence of a holy God, we have to be holy like he is holy. And since not a single one of us can be holy in and of ourselves, God sent one, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived the holy life we couldn't live. And if that's true, then what we truly need to spend eternity with our holy God is to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And if that's true, then doesn't it make sense that if we need to become more like Jesus, we don't need a code of conduct. What we need isn't to try harder or to modify our behavior or to do better, church. What we need is more Jesus. We need to believe more fully in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and trust that he alone can make us righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. Jesus is dependable, church. We don't have to wonder if he has abandoned us. He is a dependable, trustworthy guide his disciples can follow. He is the truth, and he will set us free. Think about this. The truth is the very opposite of a counterfeit, isn't it? You see, when someone hands you a $100 bill, if you're trying to figure out if it's a a counterfeit or if it's a real thing, the best way to discern the difference is to know what that real Benjamin looks like. Am I right? You've got to know the ins and outs of what a $100 bill looks like so that when they hand you that counterfeit, you know that it's not the real thing. You see, Jesus says, I am the truth so that when someone or something else comes along lying to us and telling us there's another way that we, can, uh, that we can call BS, we can look to him who is the truth and identify this so-called other way as a counterfeit that would seek to imprison us and not to set us free because the truth is what sets us free. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and he says, I am the life. And he reminds us here that eternal life is not only found in Jesus' name, but Jesus is our eternal destination. He says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. He's come to give us both eternal and abundant life. Jesus is the life. And we experience the abundant life most fully, don't we, church? Through our union with Christ through staying connected to him because he is the life. Second City, trying to live by a lifeless code of conduct like the Mandalorian does, it's exhausting. But following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life is full. It's an abundant life. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you it's gonna be easy, but Jesus promises that life in him will be abundant and it'll be full. That's who he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we're going to be his people, we need to know in the midst of our separation anxiety that we can remind ourselves and others can remind us who he is, but we also need to be reminded of what he has done. Because after Jesus finished with this conversation and the, uh, the rest of the upper room discourse, he did something. 
He did something to prove once for all that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus made a way for us to be with him forever and to never be separated from him for all of eternity. He truly prepared a place for us who believe. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve for our sin. He rose from the grave three days later so that all who believe in him could rise with him and be with him for all of eternity. Church, Jesus has not forsaken us. Jesus has not abandoned us. No matter how long it's been since the last time you felt like you tangibly experienced his presence and power, if you are in Christ, he never has and he never will abandon you. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's proven that through what he has done. So I want to end here. What he, who he is and what he has done changes everything about who we are, doesn't it? The good news of the gospel is that what he has done changes everything about who we are. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone. Behold, the new has come. When Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's not talking about cognitive, rational belief in his existence only. He was talking about worshiping him, building your life on Jesus, and finding all of your identity in him. Because if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if Jesus has made a way for all who put their trust in him to spend eternity with the Father, then all who trust in him now here are children of God. This is who we are, church. We are children of God. See it in our text. In verse 13, after, right after the betrayer leaves the room, Jesus says, little children. That's how he addresses them. In chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us. Where is he going to prepare that place for us? In his father's house. It's familial language. And he assures us that we know the way. And, he, and all he calls us to do many times in this text is to believe. Sacred City, it's clear that in Christ we are children who have been adopted into God's family. God is our father, and our eternal home is with him. Jesus is our elder brother who's gone to prepare a place for us, and we here in the church are brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does it look like for us to live that out rather than to allow ourselves to stay stuck in this separation anxiety? Well, that's the end of this text. As children of God, what do we now do? Well, there's three things I want to hit, and then uh, we'll go to the Lord's Supper. The first is we battle against unbelief. There's a reason that Jesus here in the upper room tells them three times, believe, believe, believe. In order to keep our hearts from being troubled with feelings that God's abandoned us, we're going to need brothers and sisters in Christ. Here at, at Sacred City, we call that an MC. You're going to need an MC to be able to look into your life and see at street level when you're suffering with this separation anxiety. We're going to need brothers and sisters in Christ who battle with us against unbelief in our hearts. We'll need them to call us to repent and believe the gospel time and time again. That's what we were working together as interns this week to try and equip one another to be able to do. To see, hey, you don't have a car problem. You have a belief in the gospel problem. And let's, let's, let's dwell on him and believe in him and see what God does with this problem in your life if you're trusting him to provide. The second thing that we need to do is he says we're going to do even greater works than he has done. 
We need to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do, church. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. I'm not so sure why the church gets so surprised by this. Why do we think it's so crazy that we're going to do even greater things than Jesus does when Jesus clearly tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship prepared, and he's prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. If Jesus had prepared the works beforehand for us to walk in, and he sends the Holy Spirit to empower us to do them, then we shouldn't be so surprised that we're going to do even greater things than what he's done, should we? You see, if we're in Christ, we should expect God to prepare and empower us to do some great works in his name and for the sake of his kingdom because we've been adopted into his family. We expect to do these things because we know who our father is and what he has done already. Amen? So we got to battle against unbelief. We need to walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do to advance his kingdom. And as we do that, this text says we need to pray with power. Y'all circle back to that uh, picture in the nursery that I painted for you earlier. Those small children opening their eyes to the fact that their mom is no longer with them. What do these babies do the very moment that they realized this separation anxiety had set in? They cried out. You see, Jesus, knowing that he was going to prepare a place for his disciples and that his disciples couldn't follow him yet, He knew exactly how powerless it feels to cry out and not be heard. He knew exactly how powerless it feels to cry out and feel like nobody's listening. That's why he said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says, hey, you're a part of the family now. When you cry out, If you cry out according to my will, if you cry out in my name, I will hear you. Family, remember that in Christ we are adopted children of God and our Father is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We bear that family name in Jesus and when we pray in line with his will, we ought to expect it to be done because when our Father speaks, he acts. When he promises, he fulfills. Church, I think it's, all too often that we react when things don't go our way with separation anxiety rather than responding in wisdom by taking the time to believe who Jesus is and what he has done and who we are as a result of that and then living out of our identity as beloved children of God. Today, as we seek to live out of that identity, there's a family meal that God has set to remind us and to nourish us in that identity. So as we're headed towards the Lord's Supper, will you all pray with me? God, we lean into you this morning knowing that it's far too often in our day-to-day lives that, that we run into something, that we hit a circumstance that trips us up, and our first thought is, where are you? Why'd you let this happen to me? Have you abandoned me? God, in the midst of those feelings, would you allow the good news of who you are, the way, the truth, and the life to seep more deeply into our hearts? Would you remind us what you've done to give us great confidence in who you are? And would you help us to live and to walk out our lives in our identity as beloved children who've been adopted into your family? 
God, thank you for this meal and what it reminds us. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our Savior. We now ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.